Welcome to NYU Langone Insights on Psychiatry, a clinician's guide to the latest psychiatric research. I'm Dr. Thea Gallagher. Each episode, I interview a leading psychiatric researcher about how their work translates into clinical practice. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Alan Schatzberg. Dr. Schatzberg is a professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at the Stanford University School of Medicine and director of the Stanford Mood Disorder Center. A graduate of the NYU School of Medicine, Dr. Schatzberg is a longtime leader in the field of psychiatry authoring more than 700 publications and abstracts, and serving as president of the American Psychiatric Association. In our conversation, we explore new and novel treatments for depression, including a form of magnetic therapy that Dr. Schatzberg has helped pioneer. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast today, Dr. Schatzberg. We're so excited to have you, an NYU alum, here to, to share some of your thoughts about the work you've been doing. Glad to be here. You've been studying the biology and treatment of depression for many years. So for listeners who may not be as familiar with your work, can you give us some of the overview of your research interests? Well, I've been involved with the studying the biology and treatment of depression since the 1970s. Mm. It's a bit embarrassing, I guess. Impressive, and, I would say. <laughs> well, anyway, so we've studied the biology from from multiple kinds of vantage points over the years. We started out uh, doing research focused on the catecholamine hypothesis. These are, uh, this was the hypothesis that norepinephrine metabolism was involved in the biology of depression uh, based on a lot of the early psychopharmacology. Most of the early drugs were heavily noradrenergic in, their, in terms of their focus, in terms of their activity. And I started out working at Harvard with Joe Schilkraut, who was a professor of psychiatry and who came up with what is one of the most cited papers in psychiatry called the catecholamine hypothesis of affective disorders. We then kind of segued to looking at the interaction of cortisol, glucocorticoid, which is a stress hormone, on a monoamine called dopamine, which is involved in psychosis, to try to understand the biology of and treatment of psychotic or delusional depression. So these patients are the most severely depressed patients. They represent approximately 04 to 0.8% of the subject of the population. They represent about 18, 15 to 18% of all depressed patients. They are commonly misdiagnosed or undiagnosed because they have the psychotic features that they have are often hidden. They do not kind of voice these uh, symptoms. They're often quite nihilistic or paranoid. They have the thoughts that they've lost everything. They're impoverished, that they mm. have uh, delusions of guilt. And they tend not to respond to the antidepressant agents. They in, in, instead respond to either ECT, uh, electric convulsive therapy, or the uh, a combination of an antidepressant and an antipsychotic. So we did a lot of research on this excessive activity of the cortisol axis, the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, and eventually developed a possible treatment for it, namely a glucocorticoid antagonist, which is mifepristone. So mifepristone has gotten a lot of, um, a lot of play in the press in the last uh, 
weeks because it's the French abortifacient agent, a French abortion pill. And it's an abortion pill because it blocks progesterone. But at high doses, it also blocks cortisol. And in fact, now is approved as a treatment for Cushing's disease, which is a disease of a pituitary tumor that produces too much ACTH and eventually too much cortisol. But mifepristone in blocking cortisol could be used to treat delusional depression. And so we uh, did a lot of work on that. We at one point founded a company uh, on that that I still have some involvement in. And it didn't pass phase three because as you push the dose up, the blood level flattened out uh, in terms of the pharmacokinetics, so we couldn't get the blood level high enough to, to block the massive amounts, increases in cortisol that we were seeing. And when you give the mifepristone, since it blocks the system, the system, in fact, becomes more active. It tries to produce more cortisol because cortisol is absolutely necessary for glucose regulation, stress regulation, immune response, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, we're still very interested in psychotic depression. We've then uh, done a lot of work around the psychotic depression, which led to a number of very in innovative fMRI uh, studies showing different paradigms that you could study different activities in the brain, default mode, arresting state, science network, et cetera, that came out of uh, our work on, actually, psychotic depression. We've had other areas of interest in terms of drug development, one of the areas that probably has been the, occupying a fair amount of our time in the last five or six years is the question of ketamine, S-ketamine, and the psychedelics. And ketamine has been purported to work because it is an antagonist for a receptor for glutamate called the NMDA receptor. And as an NMDA receptor, it somehow produces a relief of depression. Now, glutamate is an excitatory neurotransmitter. It's the oxygen of the brain. So if you block it, why would you get an antidepressant effect? Didn't make doesn't make much sense, but one theory is that glutamate is so well conserved that it has other receptors that if you block the NMDA receptor on the postsynaptic neuron, that the presynaptic neuron would would release more glutamate and that would interact with other receptors, an AMPA receptor for one. And that may be, uh, may be uh, the mechanism. That didn't really work for us and hasn't. Ketamine and S-ketamine do, in fact, block the NMDA receptor. But there are a lot of NMDA receptors that have been studied as antidepressants, and they fail to meet the mark. They fail to mm. show efficacy. Mementine, memantine, which is a drug used for dementia, is one such drug. So we started to think maybe there are other mechanisms that are involved, and we can talk about that. So those are some of the things we've been involved in. We've gotten involved with more ketamine and psychedelics a little bit. We've uh, done over the years also work in pharmacogenetics. Can you develop a blood test that, in fact, will predict response or uh, to a particular drug? There's some controversy about some of that work in the field. We were some of the earliest prospective RCT, randomized controlled trials in that area. And so we've gone and done lots of different things in, in, in psychopharmacology. So I'll pause there and okay, we can great. pick up from 
there are yeah, well, it sounds questions. like you've been busy since 1970, doing a lot of uh, great work in this field. And is your work, does it continue to be focused specifically on people with severe depression and that, that smaller subset that you're talking about? We're not studying psychotic depression actively right now. We've been studying non-psychotic, severely depressed patients, looking at immune response uh, and immune activity in those patients. We've been doing suicide studies in non-psychotic patients. We can talk about that. But right now, we're not actively studying psychotic depression. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the interesting themes that we keep seeing with this podcast is that so many of you in the field who are doing this groundbreaking work, it, it's really about this personalized medicine approach, figuring out what works for which person, especially these people that don't necessarily benefit from maybe a typical protocol of an SRI and treatment. You're looking at people who might need something else and finding that it might be a number of different things for different people. Well, there's a great deal of hope that we can develop in psychiatry a personalized medicine approach akin to what we do with other disorders, particularly cancer. Right, so patient has a cancer, they uh, may do a biopsy, or they may do an excision of the tumor. They will type the the t- cancer from a genetic and a uh, a second messenger perspective. That allows them to potentially match a particular kind of oncology drug to a particular kind of cancer. And for some cancers, that works pretty well. I think we have to be a bit hesitant to declare cancer is now cured, right? We all know a lot of people who unfortunately still succumb to the disease. But there is some, in certain cancers, there's considerable improvement. And some of it is not necessarily on genetic typing, but some of it is on allowing the immune system to, in fact, uh, attack the tumor by, in a way, opening the gates, if you will, because the tumors produce uh, a shield. And so for melanoma, certain lung cancers, there's been considerable progress with these, what some people have called gateway or gating drugs or immunotherapy. But these drugs can, in fact, facilitate our own immune response to uh, knocking off the cancers. So we haven't gotten there yet in a lot of cancers, but we're just starting to get there in psychiatry. And there have been different approaches. We started out in the 70s and early 80s by looking at a metabolite of brain norepinephrine. So norepinephrine, if you remember, catecholamine, it's found in the brain, it's found in the periphery, it's noradrenaline. And it controls, in part, your heart rate, your, your autonomic system, your sympathetic nervous system, your, uh, your, your uh, GI motility, etc. And so we were measuring with Joe Schilkraut a metabolite that was preferentially coming from brain. Because most of the metabolites that you measure in the urine or in the blood uh, are derived Uh, from the periphery. But one metabolite, methoxyhydroxyphenylglycol, 
uh, seemed to be coming actually more from the brain. And so we reported early on that people who had very low levels of this norepinephrine metabolite from brain seemed to respond preferentially to drugs that were particularly noradrenergic in their effect on blocking reuptake of that monoamine. Those patients did very well. The, and, and so we, we reported this. A number of other groups, Leo Hollister at Stanford reported that, Jim Moss from the collaborative study in depression. Number, there were a number of reports on that. But it, it, did, it wasn't easily adapted for a couple, adopted, uh, or for a couple of reasons. One is you had to have, you had to collect urine for three days. Well, that's a lot of urine. <laughs> and you had to have the patient drug-free, which was mm. difficult because patients were taking all sorts of meds that could affect the test, et cetera. The other issue was we were good on the low MHBG side, but there were patients, not every patient had low MHBG. This was a heterogeneous disorder, which is still a problem for depression, multiple forms genetically and biologically. And we had a very high MHBG group that seemed to have a different dysfunction in norepinephrine turnover. There it seemed to be that the body was producing a lot of norepinephrine either in response to stress or in response to overcoming what was a defect in the postsynaptic receptor. And we didn't have a great handle on what those patients needed. And that, I think, hurt that development. Since then, there have been all sorts of other attempts to develop personalized medicine most of them have not been there in terms of success to some consternation on the parts of practitioners as well as researchers. It still is a, an issue, but it's, a, it's, a, it's an important goal. It's an admirable goal, and we all strive to get there. Yeah, and once we can have those personalized medicine approaches, it'll be better to, like you said, be able to have treatment protocols that we know work for, for different individuals struggling with different things. But for those out there who are clinicians right now and they're working with patients with severe depression, what do you think is the best option? You know, you said you've done some research with ketamine and psilocybin. There's becoming more access to those kind of treatments. What do you see right now as the most powerful treatment for severe depression? I would think that the... The most powerful treatment probably remains electroconvulsive therapy, but it also is potentially the most problematic because of its cognitive effects, its effects on memory, particularly with bilateral administration. But uh, what are other things that seem to work and where do they fit or whatever? And a few comments, if you will. I think there's been a, a hope that certain drugs that produce a psychotic-like reaction, a psychedelic-like reaction, or a dissociative-like reaction are going to be panaceas, that they're going to kind of cure all forms of severe depression. But when you look at the, the response rates, while some people have a dramatic effect or response to ketamine, the response rates are still under 50%. If you look at some of the data that the Yale folks have put out in terms of their very extensive experience in refractory depression, we're still in the 40s. If you look at the study that Compass, which is a company I've consulted to, 
out of the UK reported in the New England Journal in their phase two study. 25 milligrams is separated from one milligram, which is a putative placebo, at three weeks after single-dose administration. But the response rate or the remission rate was still in the 30s, 37%. So even in these very potent psychotic-like, psychotomimetic kinds of treatments, you're not seeing 100% responses. People need to be mindful of that. Somehow patients have had this notion that these drugs are going to blast them out into outer space and cure their depressions. It don't work that way. The response rates are much, much lower than the, the press, in fact, uh, reports. But I think they have a role. I think the problem that we have with ketamine, with esketamine, with psilocybin is durability. And we don't really have really good long-term data with ketamine or esketamine. We have some with esketamine, I think. Uh, uh, but, you know, are there, in fact, drawbacks from administering ketamine and esketamine repetitively over a long period of time? With psilocybin, we don't have the protocol. We don't know. We've only done single dose. We don't, there, are, there is one blinded study that, uh, of two doses, but mo- mostly we have limited data in terms of durability. So that is, is an issue, and we don't know what the liability is on, on repeated administration, particularly, particularly in terms of drugs that might be abused. Now, having said that, mindful of your question about the practitioner, I have a great deal of concern, and there was an article in the New York Times maybe a month ago about practitioners who write scripts for oral ketamine that is made up by a compound pharmacy in the community. It's relatively inexpensive, and then they kind of hand this out with people taking it as often as daily. Now, this to me is is a major risk for psychiatry and for patients. Ketamine can be addictive. You can develop tolerance. You can develop dependence, etc. In Asia, where there was more ad libitum use or access, just as PCP in China, there were hundreds of thousands of ketamine uh, addicts. At one point, China petitioned the World Health Organization to make ketamine a Scheduled One drug. So this is a real problem. This ad libitum free access uh, is potentially dangerous. Now there are are a couple. Of, there are two or three companies that are trying to develop proprietary, eventually, hopefully, FDA approved oral ketamine but to be given on something like a twice-weekly basis with a long, uh, a slow-release kind of formulation. That may turn out to be, one, it will turn out to be safer, and it will also be studied so we'll know what the long-term risk is uh, about those. One of them is a company called Douglas Pharmaceuticals, a company I've done some consulting with. They, they've done a phase two study that they've done a press release on. So... The, the psychedelics, very exciting, very interesting. 
But we need to know a lot more. And we can come in more in terms of some of our interests in terms of the mechanism of action of ketamine and S-ketamine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you um, talk a little bit about the mechanism of action there? And it sounds like what you're saying, and I'll just pause for a second here, but it sounds like what you're saying is you, you don't necessarily think this idea of oral ketamine is, is necessarily the answer. Could be the or answer. concerns you a little bit. People making up, uh, doing an a compound pharmacy approach in the absence of any data, and it's data on efficacy, data on safety, but also on bioavailability. This is not a drug that was developed as an oral. This drug was developed as intravenous for anesthesia and for eventually for pain. So ketamine is not a drug that is an oral tablet. I mean, so there's very little data on or very little uh, data on what blood levels are attained, what blood levels are needed, what level, blood levels may be too high. We don't have any of those data. And uh, you, you don't, you're not dealing with a proprietary formulation that where all of this is worked out, worked out for the field, worked out for the company, worked out for the patient, worked out for the practitioner. So I, I don't think this is a good thing. Yeah, and I get what you're saying is that even if, so the, the research is looking promising, but don't get too ahead of it with something that actually maybe hasn't been studied to large extents. Like, and you're saying oral ketamine is one of those drugs. Yeah, this article in the New York Times had several cases where people, in fact, started to have all sorts of secondary issues. They started either developing uh, dependence on it. They had developed side effects. I mean, there, there are all sorts of issues that need to be worked out if we use um, an oral ketamine, particularly long-term. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and to go back to that question about mechanisms, can okay. you talk a little bit about mechanisms? And interestingly, we were just talking with uh, Dr. Michael Bogenschutz about his psilocybin and alcohol use disorder study. And he was saying how it, it's it's interesting that they don't exactly know exactly what's happening on the mechanisms side. So what do we know with regard to ketamine and, and mechanism? Well, there's been a lot of interest in that ketamine as an NMDA antagonist and this question of whether, in fact, you're getting a secondary release of glutamate and stimulation of a postsynaptic receptor called AMPA. So that that is one theory. Now, a number of years ago, Carolyn Rodriguez, who runs our OCD program at Stanford, OCD research program, had reported while she was at Columbia that intravenous ketamine in refractory OCD patients produced a dramatic anti-OCD effect, and it lasted for about at least a week. So she was seeing longer-term kinds of effects from from an intravenous one intravenous administration of ketamine. Well, that study reminded me of a study that Larry Curran, who was her predecessor, is now emeritus at Stanford, had done looking at oral morphine, which is a mu agonist, opioid, analgesic, in refractory OCD. He took refractory OCD patients about 10 years before 
Carolyn, and he uh, did a double-blind, double-crossover study involving lorazepam, morphine, and placebo, and he showed that oral, oral morphine, 20 to 30 milligrams, I think was the dose, had a dramatic effect the next day in refractory OCD patients, and they lasted five days. Now, he pointed out that there was some NMDA antagonist effects there, and perhaps that's why it was working. This is before ketamine had been shown by Carolyn to be effective in OCD. Now, around the time that Carolyn came out with her OCD in ketamine OCD study, a group in Brazil, first author Pacheco, reported in an animal model of pain using, you take rats and you, you, you see how long they can keep their forepaw on a hot plate. And if you give them an analgesic, they can keep their paw on the hot plate longer. This is a very low-level pontine kind of response. And the animals were able to tolerate the pain uh, if they gave uh, them ketamine for, for a certain amount of time. But when they gave them naloxone at the same time, which is the antagonist for the opioid receptor, mu opioid receptor used to reverse overdoses, Narcan, uh, they showed that and Narcan basically reversed the ketamine's analgesic effect in the animal. And so what they showed was that ketamine was acting through a mu opioid uh, effect. Okay, so we started to argue Maybe there's a less here about ketamine being an NMDA antagonist, but maybe ketamine is really acting as an opioid. So we did an experiment. We published this in the American Journal of Psychiatry. Uh, Nolan Williams, the first author, author, Boris Heifetz is the second author, came out of our lab. And what we showed was that if you took depressed patients who had these aha, ketamine is wonderful, it's, you know, response, I'm, I feel terrific. If you repeated the ketamine, but one time gave them naltrexone or you gave them placebo, those people, when they got naltrexone, which is like naloxone, did not have a, a, an antidepressant effect. And we, we did it in random order, et cetera, et cetera. And so we show that ketamine's powerful antidepressant effect is blocked by pre-administration of an opioid antagonist. That finding has now been replicated five or six times in lower animals, in rats. The behavioral effect of ketamine or S-ketamine in the animals is blocked by pre-administration of naltrexone or naloxone in, in mice and rats. So I think it's clear that it has an opioid effect. It doesn't mean that there isn't an NMDA antagonist effect. And I would suggest that the NMDA antagonist effect is not the antidepressant effect. It, NMDA antagonism gives you plasticity. It's very involved in memory and other things. It gives you durability. And it may be that the NMDA antagonism is giving you the durability to the opioid effect. And so in, in ketamine or S-ketamine. There are now papers, two papers, from the NIDA group, Michael McKellie-Dees, very elegantly demonstrated that S-ketamine 
animals will self-administer esketamine, that the binding of esketamine, which is the more potent enantiomer of ketamine, is about the same to NMDA, which is supposed to be the mechanism of action, as it is to uopioid uh, receptors. So ketamine, esketamine, is about as potent, slightly less, an, a, an opioid agonist as it is an NMDA antagonist. So those opioid properties, though, could be good, but it also could present problems over time with patients maybe developing some tolerance, etc. There is one paper from in Nature in the last year that suggests that the dopamine response that you see when you bind to opioid receptors is less with esketamine than with opioid, typical opioids. That may be something that, in fact, is protecting uh, so that you're not getting a kind of the same degree of euphoria or whatever. We need to study more. But there's no question, I believe, that ketamine, esketamine, are binding to the mu-opioid receptor, which is your pain receptor and has an effect on mood. And that effect can be blocked by the antagonist, and that effect underlies the behavioral responses, tip, uh, suggestive antidepressant effect in lower animals, and it blocks the antidepressant effect in depressed patients. And does there need to be continued dosing of the esketamine in order to see these results, or, or can it... Like, I know that some people do it for a certain period of time and then they see maintenance of gains, or is it the idea that they have to stay on it? If you look at the esketamine, which is Spravato, study done by the company, Janssen, uh, and filed for the FDA, what they did was, so all of the uh, Spravato studies in the package submitted to the FDA involve Spravato or esketamine plus an antidepressant, or placebo plus an antidepressant. So what they did was a long-term maintenance study. They treated people with Spravato, and they took the responders, plus Spravato plus antidepressants, and after a few months, they said, okay, we're now going to continue the antidepressant, but if you're taking Spravato, you're going to give you saline, and if you're on saline, you'll continue on saline. And what do they find? The patients had a much, continuing on an antidepressant, the patients had a much higher relapse rate than is seen when people just come off antidepressants. And these people stayed on their antidepressant. So obviously, much more rapid relapse and much higher rate of relapse. Still about half the people were able to get off. But there are people who are not going to get off, and you see that clinically. And then the question is, is this a dependence in some way, physical or psychological? Is that mediated through the mu-opioid receptor? Uh, we need to know more. Now, it may very well be that that is what these patients need. It's possible that some forms of depression need to be treated through some mu opioid agonist effects. Mm -hmm. It is. Can we For develop the long term, you mean, yeah. Yeah. Can we develop safer mu opioid agonists? Maybe that can give you antidepressant effects, but not necessarily dependence effects. We need to be able to study that and see if we can do that. 
that is going to be, I think, a, an area that needs to be developed. It is happening already. S-methadone. So methadone is an NMDA antagonist, like ketamine, but it's an opioid, right? It has mixed opioid uh, agonist and antagonist effects. It's used to the treatment of opioid dependence. And it has two enantiomers. There's an S, and there's an S or a D and an L. And the S is thought to be supposedly weaker at mu and been argued to be not have any mu. Well, there's a paper that's just been posted from the NIDA group showing that S-methadone is about as uh, powerful as a mu as the, uh, it's an antiomere. It is not, it is about the same for NMDA as it is for a mu, and that may be different than the other enantiomere. But at the same time, the drug at the dose being studied, which is a very low dose, is not in achieving efficacy in the phase three trials that have been reported. So, again, it's, it's an opioid, you know, and the question then is how much? But maybe if your dose is too low, you're not going to get the enough opioid effect to get the positive effect. Research is going on at times with drugs that people would like to say are not opioids, but they are opioids. And we need to embrace that this is a, an interesting area that could yield some information. But uh, I think we're likely to not have some risk when we get to the doses that are needed that are high enough to give you some antidepressant effect. Mm -hmm. and, and isn't this some of the hope with psychedelics that it might be able to be administered once or twice and have long-lasting effects? And is that some of the hope of the research there in that it might not be something that has to be continued for maintenance of gains? Well, in the, in the Compass study in the New England Journal, Guy Goodwin is the first author. Guy is a distinguished psychiatrist who was the chair at Oxford. They didn't see durability. You know, they, if you look at three weeks, they got about 37%, I think, remission. But they didn't get more remission going out. They started to kind of lose some effects. So you're going to have to probably, you're going to have to give it more than once. So we don't know how often, I think. So that's, that's one issue. The question with psychedelics is an interesting one. And if we have two minutes, let me give you a, a little bit for the listener about where we are with these drugs, because the story is a little bit, a little bit more complicated than just psychopharmacology. So for all of these drugs, ketamine, S-ketamine, psilocybin, DMT, there's MDMA, there is uh, some opportunity for combining with psychotherapy, okay? Ketamine and ketamine have been developed in the absence of a psychotherapy adjunct. They were tested in the context of a pharmacological adjunct with a treatment as usual antidepressants. There are practitioners in California particularly, who will use ketamine 
in the service of some sort of psychoanalytic, psychodynamically oriented therapy to enhance insight, to decrease resistance, to open up the uh, individual to understanding their own dynamics, etc. That is not part of the FDA-approved package for for S-ketamine or for the typical use of ketamine. For psilocybin, from years ago, psilocybin was used in conjunction with some forms of therapy. And so the FDA development was tied to using some guidance uh, psychotherapy with meetings pre the psilocybin experience and post and accompanying the patient during the kind of trip, if you will, but without the therapist saying something to it. So it's a kind of a psychotherapy-assisted psychopharmacology, right? The therapy is assisting it, but it's not that the, the psychedelic is really designed to open up the insight. For MDMA, which is used for PTSD, the, th- the, the, the drug really does probably enhance the cognitive kind of behavioral therapy that it is combined with. So there it's psychedelic is enhancing the psychotherapy. So all of these are kind of nuanced differently as to where the therapy is and where the medication is. But that gets into the whole question of how is the drug acting? So some would say that psilocybin is a serotonin 2A agonist. Okay, so serotonin, very important depression. We want to increase the amount of serotonin simplistically, if you will, at the postsynaptic receptor to increase the antidepressant effect, the calming effect. And what psilocybin does is act powerfully as a direct agonist at the serotonin 2A receptor, independent of what may happen psychologically. So some would say it's a potent serotonin enhancer or agonist. On the other hand, that agonistic effect is associated with a psychedelic effect, a psychosis effect. And others would embrace that that psychosis effect, a la when I was you know, starting out in the 70s uh, in psychiatry and the Beatles and the whole thing and LSD and Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds and all that, you know, that there is insight to be had by the psychedelic experience. And that psychotic experience is transformative. We don't really know. We don't really know how important that psychotic experience is. We now know with ketamine that we can block a lot of the antidepressant effect by giving an opioid antagonist. I think that's the neat aspect of our research. Can we do that with giving an antipsychotic? There are some suggestions that could happen, but it's not really been studied in, in, in a way. The last thing I think I want to say about the psychedelics, which is extremely important, they're incredibly powerful from a mind-altering perspective. The ketamine is mostly dissociative. People feel out of sync with their surroundings, etc. They may not, they often don't hallucinate with the psychedelics. They tend to more so hallucinate. So they're very, very powerful. But being powerful, we have difficulty 
in having a blind. We test drugs by doing randomized controlled trials where we randomize the patient or subject to one drug or placebo. And then we look at the comparisons with the hope that the patient does not really know what they were on. But in the study that you mentioned before on psilocybin and alcohol abuse, which was dramatic, had a dramatic effect, those patients 100% almost knew that they were given the psychedelic psilocybin and not placebo. Mm. So... There ain't it no adds blind. another layer. There's yeah. no blind. And in all yeah. and in the, in the commercially sponsored studies of esketamine and psilocybin, the blinds are not inquired about. They don't ask the patient, what did you get? When they get inquired about, the patient is about, it's 100% that the patient knows. Well, that has a huge effect on the outcome. And it has a huge effect on whether we can be certain that we're really getting an effect that isn't all suggested by hope, by anticipation of the experience, the trip, etc. Yeah, that's a really fascinating thing to consider when you're thinking about that research. Like you said, there's no, there's no real way to not know. So that that does definitely add a layer there. And I want to ask you kind of one more question uh, specifically about your research before we kind of wrap it up. But you have done, you you co-authored an important paper in 2021 about magnetic brain stimulation. And we haven't really talked about that yet. Can you just give some insights about that study and, and what clinicians should know about that? Well, transmagnetic stimulation involves applying basically a portable magnet to the scalp, often the prefrontal cortex, to stimulate a brain circuit that's probably involved in depression. And in work that uh, pioneered by Mark George at the Medical University of South Carolina when he was at that time at the National Institute of Mental Health, and the device was approved for treatment in refractory depression by a company called Neuronetics, a company I've consulted to in the past. That device is approved, and then there are, if you will, copycat devices that get approved because they piggyback on what is kind of on a putative device as a, as a similar kind of agent. One of our folks, Nolan Williams, who led the ketamine study uh, with naltrexone, uh, who's a psychiatrist and neurologist out here and runs our brain stimulation lab, uh, has uh, developed an accelerated data burst. So regular TMS given somewhere between 20 and 37 minutes once a day, five days a week for four to six weeks. So he figured out that you could, in fact, focus the stimulation on a, a, on a, a theta wave in the brain, and you could give 10 minutes an hour for 10 hours, and you could do that in five days. When you do that, even in very refractory patients, within about less than three days, those patients are feeling better. So unlike going four to six weeks, you can really do this very, very quickly. He combines that with using brain imaging. If you remember before, I talked about resting state. Well, resting state can show you the connectivity between key brain regions, 
and you can then optimize where you place the magnet. So instead of placing it here, you might place it here or down here. And that increases the efficacy as well. And this is now called Saint Stanford Accelerated Neurotransmission or something, neuromodulation. And uh, there is a company, Magnus, that I've done consulting with that is now approved by the FDA for this device, which involves a fMRI study followed by the administration of this intensively, 10 treatments a day, 10 minutes an hour, uh, uh, to get more effect and more rapid effect. So we will see how this does in, in clinical practice, but it's, it's a very exciting initiative by Nolan and his collaborators. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like there are a lot of unique uh, approaches for treating these severely depressed patients, and, and there's a lot of hope, a lot of which, you know, and a lot of questions, but a lot of hope in the future of this research. Um, but in closing, what advice would you give for, like, would you give to clinicians who are eager to keep up with research on major depression and to integrate the latest findings into their work? Well, I think listening to the NYU <laughs> podcast is probably a good place to start. Uh, certainly, we have uh, books. Chuck DiBattista and I do a manual of clinical psychopharmacology published by the American Psychiatric Association. Charlie Nemiroff and I do a textbook of psychopharmacology. But the best ways, I think, are probably continuing medical education, going to the meetings, the APA, other meetings, uh, reading up on uh, the reading journals. I think we have lots of things that are coming out every month in the major periodicals. And the clinician would be, I think, uh, wise to kind of read some of those journals as well as attend continuing medical education mm-hmm. conferences. Mm-hmm. And, and it sounds like, and on top of that, realizing that some of this does take time and we have to do more studies to kind of see, like you said, durability and some of the longevity of some of these interventions as well, correct? I think doing research is critical and encouraging patients to participate mm-hmm. in research is, is also critical for the field. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Schatzberg, for being on our podcast. Uh, We really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much again for that conversation, Dr. Schatzberg. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to rate and subscribe to NYU Langone Insights on Psychiatry on your podcast app. For the Department of Psychiatry at NYU Langone, I'm Dr. Thea Gallagher. See you next time.